0: Upon God to save us, we're dependent upon God to, to keep us going. Uh, so, what a great song for us! You guys can be seated as there is one more song um, that we have for you today. Uh, we want you uh, to uh, be go with us, that's how we open the Bible and we preach. We want you to, to smell and to taste and to feel the words of Scripture coming alive. And I think this next hymn uh, does that. As we will be in the Garden of Gethsemane today, uh, this next song uh, that Paulina will do uh, is called Gethsemane Hymn. So if you don't know it, uh, follow along with the words and listen to the words today. to get us in the mind frame of thinking about uh, Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane, hours from the cross, but more to come in the sermon for that. For now, let's take five minutes of fellowship before we get to the sermon.
1: That was a, a beautiful song that they sang there at the end, the Garden of Gethsemane song. It goes right along with the sermon that we're going to look at today. If you've got your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew 26. And we come to a passage in Matthew 26 that Charles Spurgeon, and I have read this this week and I thought it fits it perfect. Charles Spurgeon called this passage the holy of holies in the life of Jesus Christ. So we're walking into a very serious passage. We're walking into a, what I've felt this week to be a very heavy weighty passage as we get to and i want you to do that brandon mentioned it but i want you to do that with me i want you to walk into the garden of gethsemane with me and we get to walk in through this passage into a place that the disciples didn't get to walk into you'll see in the passage he left eight on the outside three uh, he even left on the inside and then he went even further by himself almost like the the priest would go into the holy of holies by himself so we get to walk into the garden where nobody else is gone And we get to hear Jesus pray. And we get to see Jesus at what I would call the darkest hour of his life. So I want you to stand, and we're going to read this passage. If we didn't stand normally, we would definitely stand for this passage. So I'm going to read verses 36 to 46, and the title of this sermon is The Darkest Hour of Jesus' Life. Starting in verse 36, and I want you to follow with me. I want you to to go into the garden with me. Verse 36. Then cometh Jesus with them unto a place called Gethsemane. And saith unto the disciples, sit ye here while I go and pray yonder. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and he began to be sorrowful and very heavy. Then saith he unto them, my soul is exceeding sorrowful. Even under the point of death, tarry ye here and watch with me. And he went a little further, and he fell on his face, and he prayed, saying, O my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. And he cometh unto the disciples, and findeth them asleep. And he saith unto Peter, Well, could you not watch with me for one hour? Watch and pray that you enter not into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And he went away again the second time, and he prayed, saying, O my Father, if this cup may not pass from me, except I drink it, thy will be done. And he came, and he found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. And he left them and went away again, and he prayed for the third time, saying the same words. Then cometh he to his disciples, and he said unto them, Sleep on now and take your rest. Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. So rise, let us be going. Behold, he is at hand that doth betray me. This is, I believe, the Holy of Holies in the life of Jesus Christ. And we need to give it our full and undivided attention today. So as I pray right now, I want you to pray with me that we could give it the attention that it deserves. That there would be no distractions, our focus would be where it needs to be. I may never preach this passage in this way ever again. So we need to give this our full and undivided attention. Let's pray together. Father, this is a weighty, heavy passage, and I want our people here to know, to know just how serious this passage is. To see what's taking place inside those garden walls as our Savior falls on his face and prays. I want our people to see what he suffered even before he got to the cross. I want our people to see why he did it. And I want our people here today to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that just from this scene, our Savior loves us more than we could ever imagine. And he understands what we go through. For no man ever suffered like Jesus. So God, teach us about him today. Please, show us. Jesus. As the scripture says, sirs, we must see Jesus. May that be our heart today. Preacher, show us Jesus. And help me, God, to show them Jesus. May there be no distractions. May our focus be clear. May it be on these words. And we ask and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. I know that title is a very big statement that I'm making The Darkest Hour in Jesus' Life. And I know that you may be looking at other areas of his life and say, really, is that the darkest hour that he would ever face in his life of 33 years on the earth? And I would ask you just to think about that with me, what would you say? If you were asked that, what is the darkest hour in the life of Jesus Christ? What is the hardest moment that he ever had to face? What would be the worst thing that he ever went through? And there would be a long list of things that we could look at, because Jesus had a lot of difficult moments. He had a lot of, of dark hours. His life wasn't easy. He didn't live in a palace all by himself, living it up and taking it easy for 33 years. Jesus had a very hard life. Isaiah fifty three calls Jesus, and and this is the description of his life of who uh, of the whole entirety of his thirty three years. Isaiah fifty three calls Jesus' life calls him a man of sorrows. It says he's uh, acquainted with our grief, that he knew our grief with personal experience. It adds these words to describe the life of Jesus. I just want to go down a, a list of words. It calls Jesus' life despised, rejected. Stricken and smitten, afflicted, wounded, bruised, scourged, oppressed, slaughtered, imprisoned, judged, cut off, and killed. And John MacArthur would say, if any word described or dominated Jesus' life, it was the word sorrow. So I would argue, and maybe you could give me an argument and say I'm wrong. But nobody had a harder life than Jesus. No one faced what he faced. No one knew the sorrow like he knew sorrow. He lived sorrow upon sorrow upon sorrow for 33 years. His life was as hard or harder than any life that has ever been lived. And now we come to the last week. And the last week is the worst of the hardest life that's ever been lived. And not only is the last week the worst, but this last night. We're at the the last night before the crucifixion. And this is the, the worst night of the hardest life that's ever been lived. And not only, I'm going to keep going, this, this last week is the hardest, and the last night is the hardest of the hardest week, and this hour that we're going to look at here today is the, the worst hour of the worst night of the worst week of Jesus' life, right here in the garden. The church has called this passage, or this time in the garden, very simply, the great suffering. This is, here today, Jesus at the worst moment of his life. This is Jesus Facing the greatest struggle of His eternal life. This is a Jesus that we don't see very much. We love to see Him in all of His glory. We love the man of transfiguration. We, we love walking on water. We love raising the dead. We love seeing triumphant Savior on Easter Sunday morning. But here we see Him in His humanity like we've never seen Him before. Here we see Jesus at the very worst moment of His life. Imagine if somebody was to look at you at the very worst moment of your life, what would they see? We see Jesus at the very worst moment of his life, and in the worst moment of his life, we see him at his very best. Usually when you see somebody in the worst moment of their life, you're going to see them at at their very worst. But we see Jesus at the worst moment of his life, the darkest hour of his life, and when we see that, you'll see it at the end, we see him at his very best. We see Him even more glorious here than on the Mount of Transfiguration when they saw Him in all of His glory. We see a grander view of Jesus in this passage than I think anywhere else in the Scriptures. This passage shows us, again, Jesus at His worst, but Jesus totally at His best. He's suffering. He's sympathetic. And by the time He gets done, He's successful. So let's look at this. we got to see how Jesus faces the darkest hour of His life. And I think it teaches us how we can face the darkest times of our life. So let's look at this. It's it's, it's amazing. I want you to give your best attention to to these verses as we study it today. The darkest hour of Jesus' life. And I'm going to start with point number one. I want you to feel. And I want you to be in this. I want you to feel the pain of Jesus. To feel the pain. It says in verse 36, and I just want our eyes to see... Verse 36, it says, and and then. That's a sequence word. It's telling us the next event in the life of Jesus. It's it's the the order. This was next. You see it in verse 31. Then Jesus did this. And verse 36, then Jesus did this. So He's gone from the upper room where they had the the last supper. He's walked a, a mile to the Mount of Olives. And then, the next thing is He goes into the garden. The garden of Gethsemane. A garden directly below the Mount of Olives. This would be a garden that is full of olive trees. You can Google that later if you want to, what an olive tree looks like. I did. This garden would be full of olive trees and it would be surrounded by a rock wall with a gate at the entrance that Jesus has. Some follower of his has said, Jesus, this garden is yours as much as it is mine. Use it anytime you want. So Jesus goes there often. This garden is called Gethsemane. Because it's a place where the, the name means where olives are crushed. So there would be olive trees and there would be an olive press there where they would, would crush with pressure these olives and make olive oil. So this place means a, a place of pressure. It's called a, a place of pressure. And I believe that's in God's providence. He puts Jesus at the darkest hour of his life where he's going to face the most pressure that he's ever faced in a place called pressure. And again, this is a common place for Jesus to go. Luke 22 says that he went there often. When he would be around the crowds and it would kind of wear him out and he would be tired and weary from all the ministry, he would go to this garden often just to go and be alone, to be private, to pray. And that's exactly what he does in verse 36. Then comes Jesus under this place called Gethsemane. And he says to his disciples, you guys sit right here. And that's eight of them we are going to sit right there. While I go, and here's what I'm going to do when I walk into the, into the gate of this garden, surrounded by a rock wall, I'm walking into this garden, and I'm going to go and I'm going to pray. That's what it says. I'm going to go pray yonder. That word yonder, is a, a, I think it's a in the Greek it's a hillbilly term. <laughs> I like it. The other versions don't say yonder. I like it. He says, so I'm going to go pray yonder. I'm going inside and I'm going to go pray. And the word pray there is it, a great word. It, it has a, a, a prefix at the beginning of it called pro, which means I'm going to go be face to face with somebody. Very intense word. I'm going to go and I'm going to be alone face to face with the father. Jesus in his darkest hour, this teaches us a lesson. Jesus in his darkest hour, he's hours away from going to the cross. This is the worst moment of his life. He only has hours left to live. And the one thing that he has to have time for is going and praying to his father. So he prays. It says in verse 36, he tells those guys, sit here while I go. I'm going to pray in yonder. And he leaves eight of them there at the gate says, you guys can't go any further. I want you to stay right here at the gate and keep watch so that nobody's going to come in while I'm in there praying. So he leaves eight guys, and it says in verse 37, he takes three with him. We know Judas is off betraying him. So he leaves eight at the gate, and he goes in in verse 37 with Peter, James, and John. Walks in with the inner circle. This is important. He walks in with these guys who have seen more with him than anybody else. They've been with him at his most intimate times. These three disciples, Peter, James, and John, were with Him on the mountain of transfiguration when they saw Jesus at what most would say at His most glorious in 33 years. They went up there in the mountain and they saw Jesus at His his very best. And now they'll go into the garden and they'll see Jesus at His very worst. He's trying to teach them some things. Here's what I'm like at at my best. Here's what I'm like on, on an everyday basis. But here's what I'm like and what you'll need to be like when you're at your worst. So you guys come on in. You're going to see this. You're going to experience this. Don't just come up to the mountain with me and see me at my best. I want you to go into the the deep valley with me and see me at my worst. So they go in. And it says in verse 37, and as they got in, he began to be sorrowful and very heavy. All of a sudden, out of nowhere. It's like it hits him as soon as he walks into the garden. And he becomes sorrowful and very heavy. He started to feel sorrow. The word sorrow means grief and pain and distress. You could see it on His face. The disciples know this. Something changed as He walked into the garden. His face all of a sudden fell. Almost like a weight fell on His shoulders that wasn't there before. And it even says very heavy. Deep, deep sadness fell on Jesus. This is the one who walked on angry waves. Who calmed fierce storms who seemingly, to those disciples, was never scared of anything. He cast out demons. He raised the dead. And here in this moment, it says sorrow and very heavy. He's overwhelmed and he's struggling. And that's just the beginning. Because now in verse 38, he says, Then saith he unto them, My soul. He shares his heart. He shares his emotional state with the disciples. He wants them to to hear and to see what he's experiencing. He says, my soul, my inner person. He is truly 100% God. And he is truly 100% man. And here as man, he is struggling. We don't see this much. He says, my soul, my inner being, down in the depths of who I am, is exceedingly sorrowful. This word is perilupos. I know you guys don't care about that, but I do. It's a word that you would get the word periscope from. I looked up periscope on Google this week. Periscope would go up and you can look in all all directions and see everything, everywhere around you. It goes in a full circle. That's what this is talking about. He, When he says exceedingly sorrowful, he's saying that I am surrounded by everywhere I look, everywhere I turn, if I turn ahead, if I turn behind, to the left or to the right, everywhere that I turn, I'm surrounded by, I'm engulfed by, I'm drowning in sorrow. Deep, deep sorrow. And you've got to know this. Jesus doesn't exaggerate. This is what he's feeling. This is what he's going through. He is feeling sorrow to the max. At the highest level anybody has ever experienced sorrow, Jesus is there. Even to the the point, you say, "How, how, how much so? So much sorrow that it says here, look, even unto death. To the point of I could die from sorrow. It's about to kill him. He thinks he could die here. The only word I could use to describe sorrow very heavy, exceeding sorrowful unto death, is he is suffering here agony. He's suffering worse here than any of us has ever suffered. He's suffering here worse than any of us could have ever imagined. And it's not a a physical torture. This is a a mental and an emotional and even a, a spiritual agony that he's going through. To the point where he is so torn up that he could die. You say, why? What's going on? Some people say it's what had just happened. Judas betraying, disciples deserting him, Peter going to deny him, and that's weighing on him. I think that could be part of it. But I think it's not what had happened. I think he is looking ahead to what's going to happen. I've told you, Jesus knows exactly what's going to happen. He's always known what's going to happen. Even, even early in his ministry, he'd say, I must be about my father's business. I'm, I'm going to the cross. I'm going to die. I know where I'm going. But now here he is, and it's close. I mean, it's just hours away. And as he walks into the garden, it's almost like the cross fell on his shoulders before it literally fell on his shoulders. And he felt the weight of the cross. It hit him like a ton of bricks. Sometimes the anticipation is worse than the act itself. He's anticipating. He's seeing it happen before it happens. He's pre-living it. I've seen, I've I've been there. Have you ever anticipated something so much that it just weighed you down? And the anticipation brought such sorrow and sadness and, and, and it was so much worse than actually facing what it was. That's why I said this is the darkest hour. Even more, I believe, than the cross itself. He's dying before He dies. He's feeling the weight. It's hit Him as He walked into the garden. Understand this. The cross wasn't easy. We, we, we sometimes think it was, but it, it wasn't. It wasn't a walk in the park. The cross will be to Jesus in an eternity of hell. And Jesus is right now in this garden staring it directly in the face. You, you with me on that? Hours away from something none of us could ever imagine. Jesus isn't breathing through this. He feels the overwhelming agony of what's about to happen. And he says, and I am exceedingly sorrowful to the point of death. This is Jesus here at his lowest. This is Jesus here at his darkest. This is Jesus at his worst. And let me add this as a way of application. How many of us have been, not to this point, but heavily sorrowful? How many of you have ever thought to yourself, I wish I could just curl up under a blanket, sit in my room, and never leave here? I'm just overwhelmed. I'm grieved. I'm overcome. I'm to the point where I think I could just curl up and I could die. I think every single one of us has been there at some point in our lives. And if you're too young to have experienced that, then you will at some point experience pain and sorrow and agony to the point where you just want to curl up and be alone by yourself. You say, I've been there. Well, understand this. Jesus was there before you ever were and He understands everything that you're going through. So we must do what Jesus did. When we're facing pain, not at this level, we'll never be at this level. We'll never suffer like Jesus suffered. But when we suffer, and when we are in agony, and and when it's hard, and it is, it gets hard. What do we do? So you feel the pain. Now I want you to hear the prayer. Cause that's what Jesus does. He goes in. Well, watch this. This is so good. He, he prays. When you are in pain and you feel that like Jesus did, then you must pray. And we hear what he prays in verse 39, where he tells the, the, the other three disciples, you got to stay right here. I'm going to go a little bit further. You guys watch for me. Stay right here. Terry here. So now he's left eight on the outside of the gate. And he's left three a little bit on the inside. And now he's going to go on in deeper into what we would say the Holy of Holies. A little bit further. Luke 22 says he walks a stone's throw away. I googled stone's throw. 30 to 50 yards based on how good your arm is. If I was throwing it, it would be 60 or 70. (laughs) So he walks 30 to 50 yards further than the other three disciples. Left eight on the outside of the gate. Left three right there. And he's going in even deeper. He's alone. He's in private. And it says in verse 39, and he went a little further. And the weight of everything that was going on, I told you, was weighing him down. It drove him into the ground. Look what it says. This is not how they prayed. Jews would not put their face on the ground and pray. When you read of of Jewish people praying in the New Testament, they're usually lifting their hands up to heaven and looking towards heaven. But Jesus feeling the weight of, of what's about to happen, He falls on His face to pray. His face is in the dirt. He's flat on the ground and He prays. Hebrews 5 says this, and just to just to get the, the picture in your mind and to hear what He's doing, it says in Hebrews 5 that He offered up prayers with strong crying and great tears. He is wailing and He is screaming in there. The disciples have no idea. Three of them, 50 yards away, are hearing Him in agony in the inside by a tree facing the dirt with agony and tears and strong crying. And he prays. And he says, I, I, could, I could preach all three of these words. Oh, my Father. The oh there is passion. Oh, you, you you, you, get that. Some of you have been in pain before where when you pray, really all that comes out is oh! Anybody ever been there? Oh, we all have. You get a sick child. And it's Oh! 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 oh. He's crying and wailing with great tears. And then he says, my personal Father, intimate. The Jews never prayed Father, Abba. But Jesus has this intimate, close relationship that he's had with the Father throughout all eternity. And he cries out with his face in the ground, oh, my Father.
0: Oh, my Father!
1: And he says it all three times, same words. Oh, my Father! Oh, my Father! He always called him Father, even teaching us to pray, Our Father! But there was one time he didn't call him Father. On the cross, when the Father turned his back on him, when the sin of our sin was laid upon his shoulders, He didn't cry, oh, my father. He cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The relationship had been severed. Here he cries, oh, my father. He's flat on the ground, weighed down, crying and sobbing and talking to the father. And here's what he asked for. Here's the request. And it's a repeated request three times. Oh, my father. If it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. One request, three times, let this cup pass from me. You say, what's that mean? What's the cup? In the Old Testament, you'll find several references to a cup especially people who were feeling the weight of God's judgment, they would take a cup and they would mix wormwood and gall and and, and, and all kinds of bitter things into a cup and they would drink it to represent or to symbolize the judgment and wrath of God upon them. And they would drink it, and you, you know how you, you have the face you make when you drink something bitter or bad, or you get that last little, and I hate to say any part of coffee is bad, but when you get that last little drink of coffee, and it's, it's not hot, and it don't taste real good, and you got a little coffee ground in there, and you take that last sip, and, and my kids always say, man, what's wrong? I'm sitting there doing this, you know. They would take this cup, and they would drink it, and it was a symbol of God's wrath and judgment upon them. A cup of ruin, they called it. A cup of destruction and of wrath. It's amazing to me that you go into Revelation and it's like God is repeatedly pouring out cups of wrath on the world. And Jesus here has looked into the the cup of the wrath of Almighty God. He sees what He's about to drink. And in that cup is not wormwood and gall and bitter herbs. But in that cup that He's about to go to the cross and drink is full of cursedness, and death, hell, and sin. That's what he's about to drink on the cross. Are you with me? He's about to take it and to drain it dry. This cup filled with untold billions of people's sins. My sin, my curse, my wrath, my hell, and yours. And he looks into that, so full to overrunning. So foul. So nasty. You can't imagine the filth that's in there. Our world is filled with filth. Can you imagine all the filth of the the sin of the world going into that cup? And Jesus looks down at it. And he sees it, and there's a stench, and there's a foulness to it, and it's wretched. And he looks to the Father and he says, If there's a way, let this pass from me. He looks into it and he says, Is there any other way we can save mankind without me taking this? Is there a a plan B? Is there a way? That's what he says. Look at it. Oh, my father, if it's possible, is there a way? If there is, let this cup pass from me. But not my will, but your will be done. He knows the plan, he was there when the plan was made. Before the foundation of the world, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit made a plan to save mankind. The Father said, I'll choose them. Jesus, you die for them. Spirit, you regenerate them. There's a plan made. This is how it's going to happen. Jesus, the Son, is going to go into the world and and die for the sins. He's going to drink the cup. He knows the plan. But here, in His humanity, in all of His holiness, He's looking into the cup and He's repulsed by the sin. In all of His holiness, Holiness is repulsed by sin. And he looks into that cup as anyone who's holy would. And he turns his head. I can't even look at that. Why is he suffering? Why is he sorrowful? It's not death, it's the cup. It wasn't the physical pain. It wasn't death. Many have faced death without sorrow and heaviness and and feeling like he felt. He's not going to his death reposed. He's drinking sin and wrath and judgment and cursedness. That's why he's saying, Pass it. Pass it away. I don't want to drink the wrath of God. It's so bad something so holy drink something so ratchet that's it the cup is frightful the cup is fearful the cup is repulsive the cup is terrifying Martin Luther said this and I don't know if I agree with it but it's a statement no one feared dying like Jesus did and it wasn't dying it was the cup He's holy and about to become sin. Hebrews 2 said he's about to taste the death of mankind. Wow. And get this. He keeps going back and forth. What's this. And I've got to preach this. What's what it says. So he says it here in verse 39. Then he goes back to the disciples. I think it's so amazing that at the worst moment of his life, he keeps going back to check and make sure his disciples are okay. How much love can you have? I'll show you one more time in a minute, but he goes back, finds him asleep, and then he goes to pray again. And then he finds him asleep, and he goes to pray again three times. This is called the great temptation. He was tempted three times in Matthew 4 by Satan, and here he's being tempted three times by Satan again. This is the greatest temptation Jesus will ever face. As he's sitting there praying, there's a battle going on that we can't see. There's a war that he's fighting that we have no idea is going on. There's, there's not just the weight of the sin and of the curse and of the judgment and the cup that he's about to drink. There's not only that, that Peter's going to deny him and the disciples are going to flee and, and Judas has turned his back on him, but Satan is going full force all out on him. Probably even whispering in his ear, You don't have to do this. Angels worship you. Go back to heaven. I'll give you the kingdom now. What if the Father doesn't resurrect you? And Jesus is hearing this. And Jesus is feeling this. Almost like the snake or the serpent slithered up to Adam and Eve in the garden. Did the Father really say? There's another battle going on in a different garden from the last Adam and not the first Adam. And this slithering little Satan is walking up to Jesus and whispering in his ear, don't do it. He's doing everything he can to keep Jesus from the cross, from saving mankind. And Jesus is feeling a weight here that, that is so intense. A battle raging here that we can't even think about. You say, how intense is this? It's so intense that in Luke 22 it says Jesus is sweating. This is a cold night to where in just a few hours Peter's going to be standing by a fire and warming himself. It's cold in this desert. But Jesus is in the garden face down and He's sweating great drops. And not only is He sweating, drenching His clothes, but it says that the capillaries in His head burst from... From stress. And it happens to the ones who are at the most intense suffering. It's a medical thing. That Jesus started not just sweating, but blood started pouring down His face. He was sweating blood. Such a strain that it just burst open. This is a war. And notice again, three times he does this. And you need to see that every time, he's not getting weaker. He's getting stronger. Well, Just pay attention to the prayer. Verse 39, he says, let it pass. So he's praying here at a weak point, maybe the weakest point, because every time he goes to pray, God strengthens him. So he goes the first time and he says, Oh, my Father, let it pass. And then he comes back the second time and he says, if this cup may not pass, I don't think it's going to, so I'll do your will. And he comes back the third time and he says, verse 46, let's get going guys. I'll take it. It's not not the Father's will that this passes away. So every time he comes, he's being strengthened in prayer by the Father so he can stand up and go to the cross. Prayer strengthens us. In Matthew 4, I know you guys, I hope you're with me. In Matthew 4, when he faced that temptation from Satan, how did he fight it? He opened up the Bible and used the Word of God to fight the temptation of Satan. Here in Matthew 26, when he's fighting Satan, he goes to the Father in prayer. We have two ways to fight temptation and to go through suffering. We do it through the Word of God and we do it through the prayer to God. And every time he got stronger... Shows us here, and I'll move on. He's totally dependent on God here. Not like Peter and the disciples. He just told Peter and the disciples, you're going to face a great temptation. He tells them in in verse 41, watch and pray that you enter not into temptation. The Spirit indeed is willing. I know you guys are willing. I, I know you want to, but your flesh is weak, so you guys need to fight temptation by praying. And they were indifferent, and they were, they were sleeping, and they, they were on their own. Not dependent on God, but dependent on, them, on their own selves. And we do that a lot. But Jesus is the exact opposite. He knows that if Jesus, the Son of God, perfect, holy Son of God, needs the strength of His Father in prayer, how much more do we need it? And He goes, dependent on, on the Father, knowing I couldn't make it to the cross without His help. Luke 22 says that God sends an angel to strengthen him. He goes in weak and he comes out strong. You go in with the Father weak and you come out strong. You say, how did an angel strengthen Jesus? I think the angel quoted Scripture to Jesus. I think the angel showed him what's going to happen on the other end. I think he gave him Scripture that says you can trust the Father that what he says he's going to do, he's going to do. Scripture is the great strengthener of our spirits. So he goes in weak and he comes out strong. I think the angel may have looked at him and said, look what you're going to get at the end. That's why Hebrews says for the joy that was set before him he endured the cross. Despised the shame. He showed him the joy of the result of it. On the other end it's going to be okay So he's totally, and we need to learn this, he's totally dependent on prayer. We must be totally dependent on prayer. But he's also totally submissive to God. This is an amazing thing. He says, not my will, not my desire, not what I want in this moment, but your will be done. He said he came to do the Father's will, which tells me that prayer is not trying to get God to change his will to my will. Prayer is me being submissive of my will to God's will. Amen. He goes and he says, If it be your will, let it pass, but not my will. No, not what I want, but what you want. I'll do whatever you have planned. That's how we face suffering. I want this to happen. I want you to take this away. But I'm not, I'm not, I don't want it if it's not your will. He shows the ultimate act of self-denial. That he'll only do the Father's will. And what was the Father's will? Not that this cup would be passed from him, but that he would drink the cup. That was the Father's will. Now let me say this before I move on to the last point. Don't you ever imagine... For one second, that there's any other way for anybody to be saved other than this way. If there was another way, the Father would have never made Jesus drink the cup. This is the only way that anybody would ever be made right with God is through the suffering of Jesus Christ. So Satan has given him the best shot. I said that's we saw the pain, we felt the pain, we heard the prayer. Satan doing everything he can to stop Jesus from going to the cross and drinking of the cup. But Jesus is undaunted, unmoving. And now we get to the last point where we see the prevail of Jesus. See the prevail of Jesus. It says in verse 45, Then cometh He to His disciples. He keeps coming back to them. And these guys... As Jesus settled into prayer, these disciples were so weak that they settled in for a nap. Every single time he came back, verse 40, he comes back and they're all praying, they're all asleep. I, I get it. I mean you go to verse 43 and it says and he came back and he found them asleep again. And why were they asleep? Because their eyes were heavy. You can imagine that. They've had a, they've had a rough week. I, I get that. It's been a, it's been a hard few days and they've been staying up late and, and, and they've been hearing a lot of bad news and Judas is betraying and, and things are getting bad. And then they had to the pass over. I mean, their bellies are full. And then they had to walk a mile from the upper room to the Mount of Olives. It's midnight or past. I mean, it'd be hard for anybody to keep their eyes awake at that point. Jesus says, I'm going to go in here and pray for an hour. You guys stay here and watch. And when he comes back, they're <laughs> snoozing like a baby. Sitting there. Can you imagine how fishermen snore? I mean, that's untelling what he come back to. And he gets back there in verse 41. He says, but you can't watch. What are you doing? Then He comes back in verse 43 and says, okay, their eyes were heavy. He comes back in verse 45 and he says, let's just keep on sleeping. They're still asleep. Get this. And we need to understand this. At the hardest time for Jesus, when he needed the disciples the most, they were sound asleep. When the battle was raging at its hottest, the disciples were asleep. The enemy is at the gate, and the disciples sleep. When he needed them the most, you understand that? That when we're suffering the most and in the most pain, It's not when we need to isolate ourselves. It's when we need people. I think Jesus not only went back to check on His disciples, I think He went back because He needed His disciples. And when He goes back and He sees His disciples sleeping, it just makes it even harder on Him because there's nobody there to comfort Him. He's all alone. They're snoozing. And my fear is, and I want to apply this, that there's a great many in the church today and the battle is raging hotter in our world today than it has in generations. And the enemy is at the gate and and they're taking our kids and the churches are are being destroyed and and Christians, quote unquote, are being deconstructed and, and everything's falling apart and Christians in churches are hitting the snooze button. When we need to be most vigilant... Most active? We're sleeping. Romans 13, awake now. Either that sleep. The church today is sleeping through a crisis. Spiritually asleep. You say, what does it mean to be asleep? You may be awake to everything else in the world, but you're asleep to spiritual things. You come to church and you're sleeping through it. I read a thing yesterday a guy posted and said, it's, it's amazing to me that guys can watch a March Madness game and be so fired up about it for three straight hours and probably more than three straight hours. I watched games the other day and I, I won't tell you how long. I'll have to ask for forgiveness for that. And I, I was on the edge of my seat and I was so fired up and I, I, have, I have no horse in the race. I, I, I'm not a fan of none of the teams that are playing. I'm cheering against teams. I just don't want that. I want my bracket to win. And you get fired up. And he said, you can see on Saturday, men get so fired up over a ball game and they come to church and they snooze through a sermon about Jesus. We sleep through these things. You get so excited about everything that's going on. Fired up about politics and about sports. But we sleep through church. We're sleeping through a crisis. What's it going to take to wake up the church? COVID didn't wake us up. It put, it put more to sleep. They sit at home. What's it going to take? These disciples show how weak they are. They're failure. They're going to lose the battle. Do you get that? Jesus prayed and won. We'll see that. The disciples slept and lost. The enemy is going to show up here in verse 47, and all of these disciples are going to be scattered all over the place. Their failure was a failure to pray, to prepare themselves for the battle that was coming. Just like this, Jesus said in verse 41, I've got to go back to it. "Your spirit, guys, is willing, but your flesh is so weak. You've got good intentions. You mean well. But you don't understand just how weak you are and how much you need the strength of what God offers in prayer. They were weak, but Jesus was so strong. Look what it says. Verse 45, it says, Then cometh he to his disciples and says unto them, Sleep on now, guys, take your rest. You weak little men. I've read different interpretations of what this means, but I'll tell you the one that I go with is that he looks at him and he says, you guys keep on sleeping. Take your rest and I'll watch over you. <laughs> I asked you to watch and you fell asleep. But now, guys, I want to sit here and watch over you while you sleep. And you know what he does every single night when you lay your head on your pillow? You guys are so weak. Uh, Josh, you are so weak. Well, go ahead and sleep, son. I'll watch. And he watches over us, even in our weakness. And then he says, Behold, I like the word behold. You guys know I do. Here he comes. The hour's at hand. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. You say, What's this? I think as he sits there watching his disciples sleep watching over the, the eight and the three, that he looked out and he saw torches coming. Yeah. The Bible says there was a whole gang of Roman soldiers on the way. The Pharisees and Sadducees, Sanhedrin, Judas leading the way. Could have been as many as 500 people marching towards Jesus in that garden. And he looks out in the garden and he sees torches from a long way away and he says, Behold, the hour is at hand and the Son of Man is going to be betrayed in the sinner's hands. And what does he do? He looks at his guys in verse 46 and he says, Rise! You've got to read it that way. You don't wake these guys up by saying, Psst, get up. Right? I mean, that's not how I wake my kids up. Psst. <laughs> kids get up I tried to get Christian up this morning I said hey Christian get up he'd still be in bed if I did that I said hey buddy (laughs) get up that's what this is that rises alright guys here they come get up get up off the ground here they are behold they're on their way see the torches here they come Here comes the betrayer leading the way. Here comes the Roman soldiers and all the religious leaders. They're on their way. Here comes the battle, boys. And he says, let us be going. I love that. That is a military phrase where he's not saying, let us be running, but let us be going. He's going to war. The weak Savior who went to the Father in prayer is now the the strong Savior, strong and ready to go to the cross. He's prevailing here, going forward to battle. He could have easily walked away. He could have run. Nobody would have ever caught it. He could have went back to heaven. But Jesus, strengthened in the garden, is now going to Golgotha. (laughs) He stands up. Get this picture in your mind. And as he stands up, and the disciples see him, he stands there, and this may be my favorite moment in the life of Jesus. This may be his best moment. He stands there, the disciples look up at him, and he is drenched in sweat. Soaking wet from being in prayer with the Father. And it's not just soaking wet, he's covered in blood. Drops of blood has been pouring out of his pores and he's covered in blood and he's not the weak Savior who walked into the garden. He's a strong Savior ready to face death head on and to drink the cup. Let us go, boys. Let's get going. Let's saddle up. Let's play the man. Let's go into war. And he's meeting it head on. I love this moment. He is so strong here. He gets up to do the Father's will. He gets up to drink that cup down to the very bottom for us. He gets up and faces the battle that's coming. He does it obediently, he does it willingly, he does it courageously, he does it victoriously, he does it strongly. He does it powerfully. I can keep going. And I can show you. Look, look, look with me at John 18. You guys ain't, you ain't turned nowhere today. I want to hear pages turn one time. John 18. I ain't heard a baby cry. I ain't heard a page turn. John 18. Let me, let me read this to you and we'll be done. John 18. We go from a weak Savior to a strong Savior. Prevailing Savior. A, 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 a Savior in pain goes to a Savior in prayer goes to a Savior in prevail. Look at this. And When Jesus had spoken these words, He went forth to his, with His disciples over the brook Kedron where, was, where there was a garden into which He entered and His disciples. And Judas also which betrayed Him knew that place for Jesus oftentimes resorted thither with His disciples. Judas then having received a band of soldiers Of men, upwards of 500, I've already said that. Officers from the chief priests and Pharisees coming thither with lanterns and torches and weapons. He saw them coming. This is so good. Jesus therefore, knowing all things that should come upon Him, did not retreat. (laughs) But He went forth. Oh, what a Savior is our Savior. Oh, how strong He is. He went forth to confront them. Look what He says. And He said to them, He walks out of the garden. He leaves the trees. He leaves the halfway in, 50 or 60 yards. He walks out of the gate. And there they stand. And He stands with weak disciples behind Him. Like me and you. And the strong Savior out in front says, Who are you looking for, boys? Yeah." To get excited about that's better than any ball game I watched yesterday. Who are you looking for, guys? <laughs> and, and they answered him We're looking, and I, I can imagine these guys, um, 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 <laughs> we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said unto them, I'm He, it's me, yeah. I am. I don't have time to go into Exodus and talk about I am. I don't have time to go through John and say I am. The same as God the Father. Amen. Wow. And Judas also which betrayed him stood with them. And soon, as soon then as he had said unto them, I am he. They went backwards and fell to the ground. Amen. Just at the words of our strong Savior. You tell me who prevailed in the garden. I'll tell you where Adam failed in the garden and brought us all into sin. Jesus prevailed in the garden so we could be forgiven of sin. And He walked out of that garden and He talked to those Roman soldiers and they all fell down like dead men, like they'd been blown over by a strong wind.
2: I am He. Oh, my.
1: I'm the one you're looking for. And he goes to the cross stronger than we could ever imagine. And he won the victory. He couldn't, in his humanity, have made, had made it through Golgotha if he hadn't went through Gethsemane. And you'll never make it through any of your Golgotha hard times in life Unless you're going to go through your Gethsemane where you go to God in prayer. And he went to the cross and we'll study it. And he drank our cup. And he drank it dry. Yeah, God. And he did that so that. When you and me go to him. And ask him for forgiveness of our sins. It's available to us. If he hadn't done that, there would be no forgiveness of sin. None whatsoever. But now, because our strong Savior went to the cross and drank that cup, when you bow your head and say, God, forgive me of my sins and save me, there's an automatic answer of, Yes, I will, because of what Jesus did on the cross. And He did it so that when we die, this may be my favorite part, I don't want to die. None of us do. It's scary. And if you knew it was coming, there would be the same thing he said, sorrow and heaviness, exceeding sorrowful. Death is scary. But you know what's the worst thing about death? would be the possibility that after we die, we'd have to drink our own cup of wrath and judgment and destruction and curse. Now that is hard to face. But because Jesus already drank my cup, when I die, I don't have to drink a cup of destruction. When I die, I get a cup of blessing. Yeah, death will be bad. It'll stink. And I don't want to go that way. And I would love to be raptured and never have to worry about death. But the odds are for every single one of us, there's an appointed time under death when we're going to die. And you better make sure that your faith is in Jesus. Because if you die and your faith isn't in Jesus, a cup of wrath is going to be waiting for you. And you'll have to drink it dry for all eternity. You'll be drinking the dregs of wrath and judgment and cursedness and your sin throughout all eternity. But if your faith is in Jesus and you've asked Him to forgive you of your sins and to save you, then when you die, you open your eyes to a cup of blessing because Jesus already drank your cup. I don't have any wrath to drink. There is now no more condemnation on those who believe in Jesus Christ. There's not a drop of wrath for this guy to drink because Jesus drank it all. Yeah. We don't have to dread the cup. We can dread death, but we don't have to dread the cup because Jesus drank the cup. And again, looking at this when we struggle, Understand that He has sympathy for every single one of us. You have a Savior who has been touched with your infirmities. Sympathizes with your situation. And whatever it is you suffer through and you're going through, He knows it, understands it, cares, and has a shoulder for you to cry on. Run to Him in prayer. Never doubt. This is what John Owen said. In the light that we read Gethsemane here today, the worst thing you could ever do now is ever doubt that He loves you. Never, ever doubt that Jesus loves you. And if there's ever a time that you get to that point where you say, I'm not sure if He loves me or not, go to Matthew 26, Mark 14, Luke 22, and John 18, and you can be assured beyond a shadow of a doubt that if He'll do this for me, there ain't nothing He will withhold from me. He suffered like this. And I was on his mind the whole time. He loves the Father and wanted to do the will of the Father. That That was motivation. But also those who would believe like me and you were on his mind as he was suffering in the garden. I pray not only for those disciples, but for those who will come after them. This guy right here. Ain't nobody loved me like Jesus. Ain't nobody loved you like Jesus loved you. Don't you ever doubt that Jesus loves you. I think this is the worst, the darkest hour of Jesus' life. But I hope you're like me and you look at this and say, Jesus at his worst is Jesus at his best. Nobody suffered like Jesus suffered. And he did every single bit of it for you. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word, for this holy, holy, holy passage. And I thank you, God, for the seriousness even of our service today as people listened, seemed like with great, great attention. And I pray that they would take it to heart. God, I'm not giving an invitation today. I I want people to sit on this and to think about this and to pray about this and to see Jesus and all of his greatness and glory here. And God, I pray that as, your, as their minds think about it and as your spirit impresses it upon them, that if there's anybody here who's an unbeliever, that today they would put their faith in Christ. Ask him. Ask for forgiveness of sin. And know, because of what Jesus did here, that forgiveness is available. And God, I pray for anyone here who's maybe going through a, a sorrowful time, that they would be described now as a, man or a woman of sorrows, acquainted with grief, experiencing grief. I pray, God, that this sermon has showed them that they have a sympathetic Savior that they can run to and find strength when they feel so, so weak. And God, for all of us here who are weak, every single one of us here are weak, like the disciples, apt to laziness and sleep, I pray, God, that you would Strengthen us. And as that song we sang earlier said, Lord, we need you. Oh, we need you. Every hour we need you. You're our one defense. You're our righteousness. Oh God, how we need you. Please use this, God, to accomplish what you've set it out to do. And we ask and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.